you probably have all heard the phrase, well, that's some kind of Cinderella story. We usually hear that phrase for you, I know it's football season, but for you basketball fans out there, we usually hear it about March Madness, right? Well, here's the Cinderella stories, the people who got in, the, the rags of the basketball world, how they made it into the grand tournament, and will they get to the riches of the Final Four? You know, will they make it? all the way to ecstasy, to that pinnacle arising from a pit that we never thought that they would ever arise from. We hear that phrase now, the Cinderella story, the rags to riches story. The story of Joseph is actually that kind of story. Joseph has been in the pit in multiple ways and shapes and forms throughout this particular narrative. And here in Genesis 41, as we began to see last week through the calling up of Pharaoh and the interpreting of Pharaoh's dream, that Joseph is now coming into his own. He is moving from rags to riches. And we're going to see that those riches that he comes into this morning at the end of Genesis chapter 41 are nothing to sneeze at. These are significant riches. This is about the, the, the breadth of a spectrum that you can imagine. The lowest of the lows to what looks to be the highest of highs becoming prime minister of the greatest nation in the then known world, Egypt. So we turn our attention to Genesis 41. We're turning our attention to that rags to riches story. But in addition, it's worth saying on the front end that that in some ways is really the story of the gospel, isn't it? The Savior who was born in that little outhouse of an inn in Bethlehem, wrapped in mere swaddling rags, shall we say, is the one who today dons the robe of the royal king who's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and me. And, well, if you're in him this morning, you, you know what your story is? Well, it's a rest and a princess in the honor and in the line of King Jesus himself. Let the story of the rags to riches of Joseph and the story of the gospel and the story that is your story inform your own hearing of God's word this morning as we pick up the reading in verse 41 of Genesis 41 and extend to the end of the passage. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck and made him ride in his second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphranath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out from the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. 
He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, and all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard your glorious word in your presence with your people. And now we attend to it, O Father. And in attending to it, we attend to you. We want to know what it is that you want to say to us. What it is that you're speaking to us personally, individually, and corporately within the fellowship of the saints this morning. We would ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey all of that which you have spoken to us. And that you would condition our lives, even now by the Holy Spirit, that he would take this word on the wings and fly it into our souls, and that it would have transformative impact, so much so that the testimony of our time together today would be, we've not just met with one another, we've not just learned some things. We have been touched by the living God. Father, hear this prayer and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning when Ben and I were praying before the service and looking forward to being with you in the presence of the Lord, I told him in the midst of prayer, that is the Father, it never gets old to meet with you. It never gets old to meet with you. I find that I need it more as the days go by, not less. And indeed, I think that's what the phrase growth in grace really means. Does it mean growth to the point that you don't need grace anymore, but growth in that grace so that your own capacities for grace, your own need for grace are constantly expanding? That's the nature of the way the Christian life actually works, is that we don't grow in less neediness of grace, but we grow in our increasing neediness of grace. And as we grow in our increasing neediness of grace, God changes us. He grows us. And that growth, you know what part of the great evidence of it is? That we we recognize we need him more. We recognize we need him more than we've ever needed him before. That's why in some ways this passage is is both a beautiful fulfillment, but also a a tremendous challenge in the life of Joseph. 
a challenge because he finds himself now at a place where he has risen to the heights. He, he, has, he has come to, to, to life in its, in its riches, in its privileged estate. He's, he's living in a gated community. He has a multi-storied palace. He has guards waiting. There's a keypad to get in the door. He, he, has, he has feasts that are provided before him by butlers and, and, and maids. And, and all, of the, all of the needs of his life are met. He, he's gone from, from one who was in the midst of a prison to one who now abides in a palace. This is life at the top. And when we're at the top, there are some significant challenges spiritually that we face. In fact, when I was praying again this morning with Ben, that phrase from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, popped into my mind as thinking about worship. Lord, make us acceptable in your sight, which is our spiritual service of worship. And just about the moment that I prayed that, I thought of verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, which reads this way, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind, by Testing, you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable, and that which is perfect. You can hear in that verse, do not be conformed to the world. Don't be shaped by the things of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Bring me back, we might say, and in some ways the exercise of worship every week together is to bring you back to a gospel sanity. To bring you back to a renewal of mind so that you see things the way that they really are. Rather than the way the world has been selling them to you. A bill of goods all week. The goal here is to clear our minds, to renew our minds, to bring us back to the realities of what is really true. Here in this moment in Genesis chapter 41, this has got to be a challenge for Joseph as it is for a challenge of people who live in Williamson County who quite frankly probably live in more luxury than Joseph at his heights for most of us in this room. Recognizing that this passage is really for us. There's a tendency to read this and go, well, I'm no prime minister, so I don't really know how this directly affects me. Well, you live like one. Historically speaking, you and I live like one. We have more privileges, we have more opportunities, we have more of the world at our fingertips than at any other point in human history. And that's why I think as we look at this passage together, it's good to look at it in the, in the, the rhythm of Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 in many ways. The, the tension and the fulfillment that are both here in this passage. And so I want to look at it in these three ways with you. I want you to see first Joseph in the world. I want you to see Joseph in the world in verses 41 to 45. And then I want you to see Joseph not of this world in verses 46 to 52. And then I want you to see Joseph for the life of the world in verses 53 to 57. In the world, not of the world, for the life of the world. That's what I think we see when we look at Genesis chapter 41 together. Now, if you can, if, if you can note it right there at the beginning in verse 41 under this in the world point, it starts out 
with just this recognition from the lips of Pharaoh of the power that he is now investing in Joseph. See, he says in verse 41, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. You will be, as it were, Pharaoh to Egypt. I will set you up to to be me, in a sense, to represent me. When I can't go into the meetings, you're going to go into the meetings and be me. You're going to channel me. When you ride throughout Egypt, the people are going to respond to you and the power that I've invested in you and delegated to you in the way that they would respond to me. I'm giving to you tremendous power. I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And if I've set you over all of the land of Egypt, you got to look like you've got the power. You got to get a power suit. You got to change in those rags of the prison for what he describes here as a linen wardrobe. You you got to get some bling. I'm going to give you my signet ring. I'm going to give you the power that represents me. I'm going to put a chain around your neck. Maybe yesterday as you were watching college football, you, you may have seen a college defense or offense do something remarkable and then come along to the sidelines and what do they probably do? Dance around and taunt and they might have put a like a like a necklace on them, like a major gaudy necklace that made them look like they were king of the world because that's how they felt of themselves in that moment. I'm going to give you a a necklace, a a, a large chain, gold chain to go around your neck so it'll be unmistakable that you are a man of power and a man of glory. I'm going to get you the fanciest car in town. You get the second chariot. I get the first, I'm Pharaoh, but you get the second chariot. It's got a few more miles on it. It's got the same bells and whistles, though. And I want you to take a victory lap around Egypt. We're going to get in that chariot, and we're going to ride all over the place. And everywhere we go, the cry is going to be, bow the knee. Joseph has been in a position of bowing to others for years. And now all of a sudden, in in the midst of the text, the quickness of the way the narrative moves, he now becomes the one in whom everybody around him is now bowing. And hopefully you can hear a little bit of Genesis 37 in that. A little bit of the dream that he had as a boy. Not the fullness of it, but the beginning of it. And you got to have a king's name. He actually changes his name from Joseph to Zaphranath Paneah. Now, I must admit, I like Joseph better. Just Joseph rolls off the tongue a little better than Zaphranath Paneah. But, but, it, but a, a name which is somewhat disputed with regards to its meaning, but the best scholarship in and around the name means that God lives and God sees. He gives them a name that represents the God of what he represents, a God who sees And a God who lives, because what was Joseph but an interpreter? He was a kind of eye of God, as it were, to Pharaoh. He gives him a name that pictures his power, pictures his authority. And then he gives to him, of course, what every prince, every prime minister, everyone of great glory must have. And that is a trophy wife. He gives him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. In every way, shape, and form, we are seeing this glory, this power. And what we're seeing is this partial fulfillment. 
the fulfillment of the dream that was given many years ago in Genesis 37 when he was but a boy. Now I say partial fulfillment because you'll remember if you've been following with us in that narrative in Genesis 37, it's not just the people of Egypt who bow down, but it's ultimately his own family that bows down to him. And we haven't seen that yet in, in the story of Genesis. Spoiler alert, it's coming. But if you can note this, this establishment of Joseph in position and power and the richness of fulfillment, this rags to riches glory is simultaneously a temptation. It's simultaneously a temptation. Now, what do I mean? Well, maybe you'll remember Moses preparing the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy to cross over the Jordan River to enter into the land of, of Canaan. As he's preparing the people of Israel, and he says, listen, I want you to know you're going to get into that land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Speaks about it also in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You're going to get into that land after you cross the Jordan River, and you're going to occupy houses that you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards that you, you didn't plant. You're going to drink water from cisterns that you didn't dig. And the greatest temptation that you're going to face in those moments is to totally forget God. It's to totally forget God. The greatest of those temptations is going to be that we have gained power, we have gained wealth, we have gained success by the might of our own hand. That's the tendency. That was the, the, the unfolding of the people of Israel's history. In fact, if you can watch in the later stories of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, each time the people of Israel begin to be self-assured in the midst of their success, and they begin to drink in the worldly delights, and they begin to look to themselves rather than to God, they fall into idolatry and immediately come under the judgment of God. And there's a process of remembrance and repentance and restoration that they have to undergo in order to gain the blessing of God yet again. At this moment in the Joseph narrative, though it is a moment of great glory and fulfillment, we shouldn't miss that. It's also a moment of great temptation. Any of us who have had great success at any level know the temptation that Joseph is under in this moment. It's really, if I could summarize it in one word, it's a temptation to worldliness. Temptation to worldliness. Now, listen, if I don't for a moment pause and stop on the term worldliness to folks like us in Middle Tennessee in a very wealthy community, then I'm not doing my job. I'm not being faithful to the text of Scripture. Worldliness is the temptation that every single one of us are dealing with. In, in, in more ways than we even know because it's the air that we breathe. It's, it's like asking a fish, how's the water? Because the air that we breathe is an air of worldliness. It's an air of worldliness. Now, when I, when I say the word worldliness, let me be clear. When we hear the word worldliness, and, and sadly, I, I think this, this term is kind of falls on our ears e either with confusion or mis or such misunderstanding that we actually miss the heart of what the Bible's really addressing when it speaks of worldliness. And there's some reason why there's some confusion. In the 20th century, there was a well-known movement known as fundamentalism. Some of you will be familiar with that term. 
It's a movement that in many regards is, there's much to commend. It was a return to the scripture over and against a liberal movement that disabused and deconstructed the scripture and took away its distinctive doctrines, classic and historic doctrines. It was a, a movement that lifted high the church and the work of Christ and, and called for faithfulness and obedience to the word of God. But there were aspects of that movement, like there are aspects of every movement that were deeply concerning. One of the aspects had to do with how worldliness was understood by many in the 20th century. It was understood usually as a kind of activity that one should not engage in. A certain set of taboos or activities, you know, like drinking alcohol or dancing or playing cards or going to the movies. David Wells, in an interview uh, some years ago that I was reading, was talking about one of Billy Graham's very first crusades when Ruth Graham went with him to England uh, during a period of when the fundamentalists were actually on the rise in the 20th century. And there was a bit of a scandal that broke out across England because Ruth Graham showed up with makeup on. And that was not considered acceptable for Christian women in the early part of the 20th century. Worldliness. Now, when we, we hear that word, worldliness, and the way the world often hears that word, worldliness, as they approach religious folk, that's normally what they think, isn't it? These are the people who make sure that we have no fun at any point at any time. They're there to stamp out anything that where you know, people are experiencing joy. It's that old, um, that old quote, by Minkin, I think it was, in the 20th century. Maybe, in, maybe it was H.L. Minkin, I think, in the 20th century, who said, you know what Puritanism is? He said, Puritanism is the fear that someone somewhere is having fun. Now, that's not fair to the Puritans, but you get the point. That's usually what we think of sometimes with regards to worldliness. That's not the scriptural's view of worldliness. Now, there are certainly certain activities that need to be deeply safeguarded, and there are things that are taboo, as it were, off-boundary. But, but there's more issue with regards to the heart when it comes to worldliness, not the issue of a particular activity. When the Bible is speaking of it, it's asking, is the affections of your heart and life rooted in the things of the world? Or are they rooted in the citizenship that is yours in Christ in heaven? Are you laying up riches for here on earth where rust and moth will decay and destroy? Or are you laying up treasures that are in heaven? Where does your allegiance lie? Where is your real loyalty when the, the rubber hits the pavement of life? Are you committed to the things of God or are you committed to the things of the world? Are your values and your priorities and your aims driven towards the things that God has defined and identified in the Word? Are your values and patterns and aims driven towards the things that are popular in the culture in which you exist? You see how global that perspective is. It's not an action. It's a way of being. It's a way of, of thinking. It's a way of living. Uh, one that's oriented more towards the world uh, than to than to the things of God. How do you know, right? 
if you're battling worldliness? Well, I think one of the places that you should just, in a default setting of your mind, say, I am always in some ways battling worldliness. You should just know that. In the world in which we live, you are always battling worldliness. Now, you may not be battling it. That may be the problem. But it's not as if you're sometimes dealing with it. It's always there. It's an ever-present reality. When we find time to read the newspaper, but not the Bible. When we find time to recreate, but not attend church. When we find times for our personal lives, but not for ministry. When we find times to go on vacation and use our resources, but not to tithe. I know. I feel it with you. Every time you're making a decision in some ways is a decision with regards to whether you're going to be committed to the things of the world or the committed to the things of God. Every way, shape, and form, worldliness is with us. Even when we do the good things that we do, don't we often do them for worldly reasons? We're surrounded by these things. And the more that we drink them in um, subconsciously without examination, the more they influence us. And before long, we look and we walk and we talk exactly like the world. And we have become in the world and of the world. The pressure on Joseph in this passage is to actually be Egyptianized. That's the pressure of this passage. He's changed his name to an Egyptian name. He's given him an Egyptian wife. He lives in Egyptian architecture. He eats Egyptian food. He wears Egyptian clothes and jewelry. He rides in Egyptian transportation. He is a man who is in the world. This is Joseph in his power and in his privilege. It's a wonderful fulfillment of God and it is simultaneously a deep and profound temptation. And this is why, secondly, I want you to see that it's not just in the world, the empowerment of Joseph. It's, it's the not of this world. I want you to see the faith walk of Joseph. The faith walk of Joseph. Now, when I say faith walk, hopefully you can see I'm bringing together a couple of things. I'm bringing together what we profess with our lives and the way we actually live. What it is that we say, but also what it is that we do. I want you to see that Joseph, in the context of this passage, is a man who walks out his faith. He knows and displays the inextricable relationship between faith and works. And we see that everywhere we look in the Bible. An inextricable, a linked a yoked relationship between faith, what it is we believe and trust in, and that which we do or how it is that we live. Jesus himself, when he's speaking to his disciples in John chapter 13, he says, if you know these things, if you believe these things, blessed are you if you do them. James teaches us, be doers of the word and not merely hearers only, for a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. Now, when I say that faith and works are yoked and they are inextricably linked together, I don't want you to hear James or Jesus or Nate even to be suggesting in some way, shape, or form that there's not a primacy in terms of the ordering of faith and works. Faith is certainly in terms of its primacy, it comes first. But because of its firstness, if it is first in our life, the necessary second 
will be the works that follow. The necessary second. There's no, there's no if works continue or if they show up. It's, it's when. It's, it's how they flow is out of faith. We know, that, we know that hearing by faith comes through the word of God. We know that. But the hearing that comes by faith in the word of God necessarily does. Even as Martin Luther put it years ago, I believe that one is saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always has works. Now, let's put it in context here. Pharaoh received God's revelation in a dream, didn't he? Joseph was the interpreter of the revelation of that dream. They have a revelation. They have understanding. Now, now let's just ask a question real quick. What if that's all they had and all they did with it was just took it in, smiled, and said thank you, and walked away? What if they do what we sometimes do, maybe more than we would like to admit, we hear the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, and we say thank you and nothing changes. We don't do anything with it. We walk out of church and it just leaks out of us. And we don't put any actionables into place. There's no, no works that follow from it. Would that be okay? Well, in this context, the whole world would die. The, the whole of the revelation that God has given them depends on their actionables. It depends on them living out the faith with works in obedience to the revelation. The implication is, I'm telling you ahead of time, there are seven years of famine that are coming. They're going to wipe out the world and everybody's going to die of starvation if you don't do something. If you don't do something with it. What often I think happens even in the midst of the revelation of the word of God, even when we worship, isn't it? Is that we, we hear it, we listen, we understand, but then often we don't do anything with it and because we don't sense the life or death urgency of that which we're hearing and understanding. That eternity hangs in the balance on the things of which God is speaking to us. How different is it with regards to the revelation that, that Joseph got? If you said to yourself, well, if I got Joseph's revelation, man, I would probably do something about that. I'd probably prepare. You actually have a much more important revelation than physical famine. You have a revelation about eternal condemnation for a world that desperately needs the gospel. You see the, the power of what's being displayed in this passage is that Joseph, here alongside Pharaoh, he exercises wisdom and discernment. He responds to the revelation of God that he has interpreted and he obeys. He acts. He acts in a proficient and discerning way, doesn't he? He, he begins in these seven years of abundance, stockpiling grain. He builds granaries in every city so that all over Egypt there will be plenty of grain when the time comes during the seven years of famine. Joseph, if you can see it, is living every single day by the revelation of God. By the revelation of God. Now, let me, let me get you in Joseph's shoes for just a minute. Joseph, says a normal Egyptian, 
Why are you stockpiling all this grain? We've got so much, man. It's unbelievable. How what a blessing the Lord has has given to us, man. I just feel like you're like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. Ever since you came in and you began to help rule things, we've been getting all kinds of riches. But I don't really understand why you're taking all of this grain. You're building these granaries. We're never going to be able to eat all of this. From the world's perspective, from the eyes of the flesh, it wouldn't have made any sense to stockpile the measurements of grain during those abundant years of feasting. But Joseph wasn't living by the eyes. He was living by the revelation of God. In the midst of a world that often would not understand. Every step of his life is shaped by the revelation of God. It's fascinating, isn't it? The, first, the previous 13 years, which we have followed in Joseph's life, 12 years old when we meet him with the coat of many colors, right? 13 years, he's lived by the waiting for the fulfillment of a dream. Now the dream is being fulfilled. And guess what? The next 14 years of his life will be lived by another dream. Every moment of his life is being lived by a dream. He's marking it. And those dreams are no mere dreams. They're not your, you know, I had late night pizza, had a bad dream kind of dream. These are prophetic dreams. God is speaking in and through these dreams. He's living by the very word of God. He does not live by bread alone. But he lives by the word of God. Now listen, I just want to challenge you for just a second. How many times do you walk out? I think of this myself, so I'm preaching to myself when I'm preaching to you. How many times do you walk out on Sunday morning and you think to yourself, man, that was for me. I needed to hear that. I know there was a specific something that I really need to do based upon what I heard this morning and then did absolutely nothing about it. What will be your takeaway from this morning sermon? What will you do? What will you do? It's not enough to hear. It's not enough to understand. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, says Jesus. What will you do? Now, you can see Joseph in the midst of this passage is in the world, but what? He's not of the world. He's living by the revelation of God. He's being faithful. How do we even know this even in a richer way? Well, I just love the way that he names his sons. I love the way that he names his sons. You know, in the midst of the fruitfulness of what's going on around him, guess what? He also has two sons. Isn't that just beautiful? In the midst of this wonderful season of feasting, two sons come along from his wife. He names them Manasseh and Ephraim. And if I could just, you know, give you kind of the the skinny on their two names, Manasseh, forgetfulness, and Ephraim, fruitfulness. That's what he named them, forgetfulness and, and fruitfulness. Forgetfulness in that with Manasseh, he says, I've been able to put behind all of my formal suffering. I've been able to forget it. God has brought me into a place. I've seen the fulfillment of what it is he's done. And people have done me wrong. Potiphar's wife did me wrong. My my brothers did me wrong. I have for 13 years suffered at the hands of tremendous injustice. But when Manasseh was born, he actually, very fascinating, named his son. I forget all of those things. I forget all of those things. 
Now, as he says that, I won't, you know, he's not saying the memory of those things are gone. This is sometimes confusing for us because God says, right? I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sins no more. Now, let's just be theological for a second. Does God ever forget anything? If he does, he wouldn't be God. The very definition of God means he's omniscient. So what does he mean when he says, I will forget your sins? He means to say that the, the curse of those sins, the guilt of those sins, holding those sins rightfully against you, I will forgive you of them. It's as if they didn't happen because I have paid for them. I've taken care of them. There is a, there is a kind of holy amnesia about them. It doesn't mean that the whole memory of them is gone. In fact, isn't it fascinating? He names his son forgetfulness, which means that every time he says his son's name and remembers his son, he's remembering what he forgot. Which actually is a sign of his growth. How many, how many of you have a spot in your life where there's a lot of tenderness and a lot of soreness and a lot of pain and maybe some resentment and bitterness that's still there and you look back on it and the temperature rises just a little bit? When you think of it, and then how many of you have experienced the Lord moving you through a path of redemption, a, a forgiving of iniquity, of reconciliation, and you look back on it, and it's not that you have forgotten it. It's that now you look at it through the lens of it being redeemed. He says, as I see Manasseh, I've forgotten the sufferings and the afflictions. I now am in a pathway where resentment and bitterness and all the things that I could hold against another have been released. You know, the word for forgiveness in the Old Testament is tied to the word of forget because it means to actually let something go. To let something go. Now, that's much easier said than done. Take another whole sermon to talk about how to let things go. And the work of grace in it. But I want you to see that Joseph here is walking by faith. And then notice, he doesn't just have one son, he has two, he has Ephraim. And Ephraim literally means fruitfulness. He's having the son of fruitfulness in the midst of a world that's full of fruitfulness. In the midst of the rising of his own life that's full of fruitfulness. And notice where he said, how he says it. His name literally means fruitful in the land of affliction. He's come to the land that has been his affliction, the place of his suffering. And the place of his suffering has become a place of utter fruitfulness. The place of his suffering has become a place of utter fruitfulness. The, the place where he was sent into exile, we read earlier from Jeremiah 29, when Israel will later go into Babylon and how they should live faithfully in Babylon, trusting the Lord but investing in that community and bearing witness to Yahweh, bearing witness to God. Joseph here, in the midst of the land of his affliction, the place that he would have never chosen to be, God has made him fruitful. He has become fruitful. And of course, in the midst of that, I hope that you see that this Joseph, who is in the world, but is not of the world, has been strategically positioned by God for the life of the world. Because the fruitfulness in the land of affliction is exactly the way of the cross. What was Jesus' incarnation and his living in this land of affliction, this land of cursing? 
One who was so in the world, made like us in every way, and yet not of this world, yet without sin. He was completely in the world. He was completely not of the world. And yet in this land of affliction, what does the cross become? This this great place of injustice, which was the mark of Joseph's life. What did it become but the most fruitful moment in human history? The place where he accomplishes most is in the place and in the land of his affliction. In the midst of his suffering, it is there where he is doing all of the saving. And it is there where Joseph is doing all of the saving. Did you notice that at the end of the passage? After those seven years of plenty come the seven years of famine. And then in verse 56 we read, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses, all the inheritance, everything that he's earned, All that he's put aside, he sold it to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, notice, all of the earth came to Egypt. You should hear in there, Genesis chapter 12, the promises to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Here is Joseph, the one who is positioned in the world but not of the world to save the world. In the midst of its suffering, he is none other than a picture of the one who is really the bread of life. The one who is the real grain that is gleaned from the field that survives the worst of famines. The real grain that's plucked from the field is one that will not satisfy. But Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. I am the Savior of the world. I am the one who is now calling people to me from all the nations of the earth, every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. I have opened up the storehouses of my grace. And you can draw on them all day and they never diminish. Such is the Joseph that is the Jesus of the story of Genesis chapter 41. Friends, as we're in the presence of the Lord right now, I want you to know it may feel like you're in the midst of a famine, some of you. And maybe you are. The storehouses of grace are open to you in Christ Jesus today. You may not know where to turn. You may not know what to do. You you may not know what help you can get. I want you to know, Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary and you're heavy laden, If you're thirsty, I am a living water that will quench your thirst. If you're hungry, I am the bread of life that satisfies. If if you are shaky, I am the rock on, on which you are to stand. If you are hopeless, I am the light of the world which shows the way and the truth and the life. You see, Jesus is constantly, the scripture is constantly teaching us to wean ourselves from the world and to wean ourselves toward the Savior. For in Him, we have our all. How is the Lord calling you away from the world and into Christ? How is He calling you as His ambassador to share the gospel for bearing witness for the life of the world in your generation. How is it that we learn from the example of Joseph 
in the fulfillment of Jesus. To be in the world but not of the world. For the life of the world. Friends, you're here not by heaven chance. And we're here together for a mission. What is he calling you to? Father in heaven, help us in the spirit now to answer that question. To what are you calling us to? To what are you calling us to? To what actions from your word this morning are we to take? What steps would you have us to walk? Lead us in such a way that we would not be afraid to obey and to experience the consequences of that obedience, no matter what it would bring. Help us to know that in the midst of it, you'll be there. And that's all that we need. To have you and you alone is to have more than enough. Oh, Lord Jesus, touch our souls by this word. And, oh, Holy Spirit, renew our minds and transform us according to this word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.